From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is away this week. We're glad you've joined us as we open the Bible and study God's Word. Now, here's this week's Crosswalk message. What if I told you we're going to bring the presence of God in here today? That we're going to dwell with Him? That we could uh, live and work and worship in his presence, that we are going to bring that presence here. It's a pretty exciting thing. And we kind of know a little bit of the spoiler because Jesus, (laughs) but Jesus wasn't the first one to give that question. And this question of what if we could bring the presence of God close, that's not new either. In fact, David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, asks that question to the people of Israel. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, um, we'll read there. And while you're turning there, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. That everywhere they went, in battle, in the wilderness, in and around Jericho— the Ark of the Covenant went before them to symbolize this is God going before us. And when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tabernacle for the first time, the cloud filled the place to symbolize the presence of God. I am there with you. And later, after this chapter that we're going to study, first, uh, the first time that the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple, the same thing happened. It was filled with this cloud of the presence of God. So, To the people of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God were synonymous. Chapter 13, verse 1. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then... Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Libu Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. I imagine a silence like that falling over the people as they were all worshiping and praising, and then this happens. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means broken out against Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? 
So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Let's pray. Father, we come before you seeking your truth, seeking to better understand what it means to be in the presence of your holiness. And I ask that as we study and as we seek your face, that you be gracious to give us mercy and to help us understand what this means and to balance a passage like this one. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I thought that bringing the presence of God into my heart, into the world, and to the lost or to my family, etc., I thought that that was the point of the presence of God. That was the point of what they were trying to do. But the point, I believe this passage is trying to make and trying to teach us about God is that we are to draw near to God. There's a small difference there. Is how can I bring the presence of God and how can I draw near to his presence? And there's this subtext of a point. And that is that the presence of God both kills and blesses. This is a difficult thing. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about some hard stuff, and we're going to talk about some really, really good stuff, all right? So bear, bear with the really tough stuff, because we've got to face it. The presence of God both kills and blesses. As I was studying this a month ago today, kind of cool, <laughs> but I was studying this in my quiet time, and, and I finished reading it and was like, I have never taken the time to really try and understand this. Um, and the first thought that came to mind was a song I'd learned as a kid, which has in it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I was like, hmm, I feel like they were trying to draw near to God and it didn't work out the way they thought, but it kind of worked out for Obed-Edom. Like, I've got to figure this out. So I went to find where does draw near to God and he'll draw near to you show up. It shows up twice. Really cool. The first place it shows up is in James chapter 4. So if you turn with me there, we're going to walk through a theology of truth in a way. And then we'll talk about how that plays out through the story. James chapter 4 verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Remember all those songs. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. He had just been talking about shepherding the flock and being subject to God. Um, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's that concept of drawing near to God and him drawing near to us, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so I read both of those and I was like, wow, there's so much there. That's really good. Don't think I quite understand it exactly yet. But both of them, in my search for drawing near to God and he will draw near to you, quote Proverbs 3.34, which says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Lastly, let's look at Matthew 5, where Jesus is talking on the mount. I find that when we truly start searching, I find myself ending up in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 a lot. (laughs) He synthesizes the word of God so well. It's like he is the word of God. Verse 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You could say the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And like James said, which was a little tough to reconcile about the mourning and and weeping and allowing that to happen so that God can exalt, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the cost, the cost to draw near to God is high. And I think we know that because we look at Jesus and and we see, oh, the cost was high. But the cost is also high for us. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about. Because truth kills. Truth kills. I know that sounds a little violent. (laughs) But we have to face our sin and the truth of who God is and who we are and the disparity that that is if we're to even come close to understanding what it means for him to draw near to us and for us to be in the presence of holy God. So here's a point about truth. Uh, A couple points about discerning truth. There's correspondence, and correspondence is like math. You You know it's true because one plus two equals three. Like, you know it's true. Cause and effect. A plus B equals C. It's, you know it's true. Correspondence. Another way you can discern truth is coherence. When from multiple disciplines, from multiple directions, from multiple angles, it all points to the same thing. Truth. I drove my van to church today. I have my keys with me. You can see my van outside, and I have a habit of doing so because I come here early. Those are three things that cohere, and you can say, okay, yeah. When Cale says he he drove his van here, he's speaking truth. He's not lying, you know? (laughs) Coherence. And the third way that we can discern it is, does it work? Generally, if something doesn't work and never does, there's not much truth to it. So with those in mind, let's look at this first point, this, this idea that truth kills, like Uzzah and the people of 
Israel were confronted with that day. And as I'm kind of confronting y'all unceremoniously, I didn't warn you that we were going to be confronting that today, but that's what we're doing. Here's a question to grapple with. Do you truly want to draw near to God in all that that means? And I love C.S. Lewis's work because he uses story to illustrate really complex truths. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they're talking about Aslan. And Lucy gets scared. And here's a quote. Uh, She says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's really cool. And I I came face to face with that myself the first time in a field. (laughs) I was spending time with the Lord and I had a lot on my mind and uh, he guided to Isaiah 40. And the beginning portion of Isaiah 40 talks about how all flesh is grass, that we're just fading away, that we wither and die, like the the grass withers, the flower fades, but the, the truth of your word remains forever. And then he goes on for a really long time talking about how great God is after you've just been like, yeah, my life is like that and I'm really small and things pass away. And he talks about who, who stretched the sky and who, who laid the foundations of the earth, who filled the oceans, who, um, who counseled God, who taught him about what it means to be just, who, who taught him these things, who established all of these, who placed the stars in the sky. And you're reading this and you're like, okay, I just realized that I'm like grass and this is like God. And you're just like, okay, the distance is getting really big. Okay. I felt so small. I felt so small. Like all the concerns that I was like, this is the world. And he's like, you are so small. And I looked in the sky and there's this eagle soaring. And Isaiah 40 ends he, uh, the young men will fall in exhaustion and um, that people will tire, but he will raise us up on wings like eagles that you can walk and not faint. Summarizing the entire chapter of Isaiah 40 is, I'm trying to illustrate to you this disparity between us and God. And, and to face that, like we, we have to, a portion of us has to die about that. Like our pride definitely does. And we were just talking about this in youth two, uh, two Wednesday nights ago, um, that what you serve will require a death from you. And even when you serve the Lord, it's this concept that we have to die to self if we're to understand who God is and to even come close to him. So that's, that's like grass and God. Here's another way to think of it. In John 1... Jesus is described as being full of truth and full of grace. So when confronting a truth like that, when we would say, I am am so far from you, God, and I know all that I've done to distance myself from you, it's there that grace in its fullness matters most. Regarding the presence of God, there's a reason Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. Because just facing truth, we would feel so small. It's like, 
take me now. Like, <laughs> I am, I'm done. And when facing some of the things that we have done that have harmed ourselves, that have harmed other people, facing things that other people have done to us that should not have happened, facing the evil in the world, when we confront and try to understand hard truths, in the presence of God, truth alone can leave us with judgment that it's our transgression and his perfection. It's our transgression and his perfection. But it's not grace alone either. Because if it's grace alone, it, it implies that truth isn't understood, that the disparity isn't, isn't understood. Intimacy, being close with someone, can be understood also as into me see. That's pretty cool. But it's also absolutely terrifying. <laughs> How do you draw close to friends when you say, this is my best friend, or when you, when you think of your spouse and what has drawn you close together and what pushes you apart sometimes is being known. The best friends and when people say, oh, my mom's my best friend or this person's my best friend, like we tell each other everything, right? Side note is sometimes often I doubt when someone says, my mom and I are best friends, we tell each other everything. Like, you tell your mom everything? I don't know. <laughs> but intimacy requires that vulnerability. Relationships require that, that deep willingness for someone to know you faults and all. Into me, see. Jesus was full of both. And to be in the presence of God, he who knows all things, the presence of God both kills and blesses. But James and First Peter grapple with this so well because they both draw out the fact that it is in the presence of God that, and it is with the humble heart that he exalts. And that word is hypsosis in, in Greek, which means lifted up, raised up. Like we are, we are laying in the dirt. We are, like, we are so small. We are so, we can feel so worthless at times. And it's there that he lifts us up. But he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That's why they're drawing on that same proverb there. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's go back to the story for just a moment. Because here's a really a important detail that's easy to miss. They had the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. The last time it had been on a cart, the Ark of the Covenant had been lost. The people of Israel had taken it up into battle and they lost because they didn't wait to hear if God wanted them to go. They just said, we're going to take God with us. And they went and they lost. And the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines. And the Philistines, in a symbol of power, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple with their God. And that night, <laughs> uh, when they got there the next morning, their, their God's idol had fallen down and cracked. And they were like, oh, that's odd. And then they kind of like set them back up and went their merry way. The next night comes, they come back in, he's fallen down again, and his head's popped off. Like, they start thinking, this is not working out. What's going on? They're getting a little scared. And then people start getting sick. And they're like, we, 
here, what's another town that can take this? And another Philistine's town's like, sure, we'll take it. And then they take it. And then all those people get sick. And they're like, this is not good. And so they loaded it up on a cart and they just slapped the rear of the oxen and had it sent to Israel. They, they didn't want to have anything else to do with it. That's the last time it's been on a cart. But the way the Ark of the Covenant was designed, the way that God laid out for them to carry the Ark of the Covenant was on poles, not a cart. They had carts. They had a lot of treasure when they got out of Egypt. It talks about how they had them loaded up on carts. You can go back to Exodus and check. They definitely had carts. God had them carry it on poles for a reason. But here they weren't doing that. Here they were carrying it on a cart. It's easier. It's easier. It takes less time. And maybe they, they argued that it was okay because they had more time for dancing. You know? Not only that, but the Levites were supposed to cleanse themselves before carrying the ark. And we, we hear the Israelites take a great idea of let's, let's bring the presence of God, but they didn't do it right. They didn't understand their position when coming to the presence of God. They treated it flippantly. And that came back to bite. It can be hard to trust when wounded. It's hardest to trust when those closest to you lie or hurt you. It can be hard to trust when you come face to face with something you've done. And there's something that happens to a person. We call it PTSD and trauma. There's something very physical that happens in people when encountering horrific things, be it something that we've done or that something that someone else has done. It's very real. And one of the ways that they've found to help with that is by talking about it. Not necessarily immediately afterwards. Especially not, actually. They've found that that's not true. But there's a reason that counseling works. And it's because it's two people being truthful with one another with what has happened, with what has been done, and reconciling that as has happened, looking at now and the effects of what that is. And you can't look forward until you've done that. And you will always find it difficult to trust, and you will, you will struggle. And I'm not saying that you won't struggle afterwards, because it persists. But you have to first face it. That it's so hard. And we see the people of Israel and David come face to face with what they had done and how because they had done it that way, someone died. And he says, how, how can I bring the ark into my home? How can I do that? I don't know if I can even trust to be in the presence of God. I'm going to push this away from me. I can't handle it. We do that with God sometimes. I gave you a quote about Aslan from C.S. Lewis, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that first installment. In the last battle, he illustrates the same point, and check this out. He says, um, He is not a tame lion, said Tyrion. How should we know what he would do, we who are murderers? Jewel, I will go back. I will give up my sword. I will put myself in who are in the hands of the Calermines and ask that they bring me before Aslan. Let him do justice on me. You will go to your death then, 
said Jewel. Do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death? said the king. That would be nothing, nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. I know, said Jewel, or as if you drank water and it were dry water. You are in the right, sire. This is the end of all things. Let us go and give ourselves up. There is no need for both of us to go. If ever we loved one another, let me go with you now, said the unicorn. If you are dead, and if Aslan is not Aslan, what life is left for me? And in a world where we struggle to trust, and we start to apply that to God, where we say no one is trustworthy, we get to that point. But when no one is trustworthy, God is. How do you draw near to God? And David says, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? He's angry, and he's afraid, and he feels vulnerable. And it's in feeling vulnerable. It's in that place that being truthful matters most. It's when, it's when you're coming to grips with a struggle in a relationship you have. And to not be truthful will tear you apart. And we think that, ah, if I'm not truthful right now, then I'm guarding their feelings. But if that is how you always act, Less and less truth is in the relationship. And you will grow apart. It's true in relationships, and it's true with God. It coheres. But it's so hard. Like, that's the hardest thing you can do in those moments sometimes. It's so hard. Facing these things can feel like truth kills. But it doesn't stop there. Praise the Lord. It doesn't stop there. Truth blesses as well. It has to go through a hard time if it's going to get better. And Obed-Edom felt that. The second part of the story is in uh, two chapters after that, in First Chronicles 15. And I'll summarize that, that David then learns what he's done. And he looks back and he says, well, he didn't used to carry the ark that way. The Levites were the one that carried that. So Levites, y'all are going to do this. You're going to cleanse and you're going to purify yourselves. Remember James and 1 Peter? Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, humble yourselves and come before the Lord. So he says, Levites, do that thing. And then we're, we are going to bring, bring the presence of God into Jerusalem. Because it also blesses and the risk is worth it. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. Not only that, but they had to carry these poles by shouldering a burden. It was heavy. This thing was wood and gold, okay? It's shouldering a burden. We don't have to bear our burdens alone. There were four of them. And God, <laughs> they're, they're with the presence of God. We don't have to bear our burdens alone. How do we share our burdens by being truthful and vulnerable. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. Or you could interpret that, draw near to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's, it's all cohering. Um, yeah. Let me give an example of a friend, a friend of mine and a friendship we've had. Um, that example, that gives an example of a humorous uh, tribute to, to truth in a relationship with someone. 
Um, in college, I didn't like confrontation. I still struggle with it, but I'm getting better because of stuff like this. Um, but I had this friend of mine who talked a lot. I mean, he, bless him, he, he did. And, and he still does, and I love him. Like, and we would talk for hours about the best things, of weird things, of things that were inconsequential, of things that mattered deeply. And we, we grew close because of that. He, he would sleep on our couch um, when he came to visit our college uh, to visit his girlfriend. And um, it was one of those nights, and I was dead tired. And we'd been talking for a long time, and I didn't know how to tell him hey, can you stop talking? Um, I don't need to go to sleep. I didn't know how to tell him that. So, so I just, I was like, you know, I'm going to let my actions speak. So I, I brushed my teeth. He's talking to me. I went into my bedroom. He's talking to me. I turned the light off. He's talking to me. I lay down, pull the covers up. He sits on my roommate's bed and is talking to me. I roll over. And he's talking to me. And I just went to sleep. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing that I <laughs> went to that level. <laughs> um, looking back, I think, I think that hurt him a little bit. Because I could have just told him. <laughs> but at the same time, he kind of should have picked up on it. And <laughs> but we've talked about that since. And we laugh about it now. We were laughing about it yesterday, actually. <laughs> um, and the relationship we have now is one where um, he drives a lot and his job is extremely flexible. So he can talk for hours at a time still. Like, he found the perfect job, okay? But <laughs> he can talk for hours and he can call me up at any point in time. And I, at one point, I just started saying, look, if I was not answering his calls because of that, and we, I knew that we were drawing further apart because of that. So I started telling him, hey man, I can't talk right now. I can talk tomorrow. I can't, I literally can't talk today. Or, hey, I'm going to be in the car for 20 minutes later today. Can I call you then? And he was always like, sure, sure, sure. Like a month and a half went by. And then he said, thank you for doing that. I always wonder, because I know I talk a lot. I always wonder if, if I'm going too far. And I wish that people would tell me. And I'm thinking, I had no idea. Like, if you'd told me that, like, this could have been different this whole time. And we're, like, so much closer now. It's super cool. And, and I, we have a comfortability with one another that's deeper than it ever was. A humorous example. So the concept of grace, of forgiveness, of truth, of humility— even the ability to hear hard things sometimes and to not freak out about it. If someone's being truthful, you've got to accept that. Truth kills, but truth blesses. It takes that to be in the presence of God. And it's so good. It's so good. So how do we draw near to God? If these things are true, how does that correspond in our life? How, how does that work? In light of who we are and the fact of who God is, we better understand Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to give three practical how-tos of getting close to God. And I'm not saying that these are exhaustive. And I'm not saying that you have to do all three of them. 
But I am saying that one, two, all three, these are acts of humility. These are willingness to draw near to God. How do we exhibit that? We exhibit that first by making time for silence and solitude. And I said at the beginning, we're going to face some hard things, and I know that's hard to face. But I also said at the beginning, we're going to be truthful. Silence and solitude is surrendering time and saying you're worth enough for me to drown, uh, cut, cut off these noisemakers, to carve some time from our busy schedules because you're worth being near. And I want to be near to you and I want you near to me. There's a, a fantastic book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. You can get it at Lifeway. I think it's like 13 or $15. Um, but changed the way that I saw value in the things I did to meet with God. Silence and solitude is one of those. And he has fantastic examples and illustrations and uh, he expounds on this really, really well. But it takes, in order to face hard things, in order to truly be truthful with someone, in order to be vulnerable, it takes time. And if we're always listening to something or watching something or distracting ourselves so we don't have to deal, we can't engage difficult things. We can't be truthful with what's really going on. It's so easy to run to what's expedient, like a cart, and not (laughs) grapple with the truth. And I'm telling you that if we grapple with the truth in the presence of God, he will meet you. And he speaks his truth into those moments when we feel most, most vulnerable and that's when it matters most. And you feel so close to God. And you walk around and you're like, man, other people need to, need to hear this. And so you start to share. It, it, it doesn't come from just a list of things to do, evangelism. It's, it's, it's from a place of God has changed me and I've met God and I've been in his presence and I want to share that. That's where it comes from. And one of the best places to get that is silence and solitude. A day planned contains margin and progress. A day unplanned contains marginal progress. I think we give ourselves too much credit. We think that we're stronger than we are. Make time for God. Second is be truthful. Be truthful. There's a reason that Romans 10.9 says, Confess your sins. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Why is that true? What are you confessing? You're not confessing what's false. You're confessing what's true, what you have done. We've got to be real with that. And the more real we are, the more we understand that God's grace has already covered it. It's so beautiful. And the more you think of that and the more you see it apply, the more odd you will be at who God is and the more that you will be able to exhibit what he has given you to other people, to friends, to your spouse, to random people, (laughs) to even situations. Be truthful, honest, why you're doing things and be truthful. 
How many things are we carrying in carts and how many things are we shouldering to be in the presence of God? We've got to be honest with God even when it hurts because he already knows. So I'll distance most of us from this, but when you're a kid, when your parent would ask something like, did you do this? And you kind of look up and you're like, "Mm, can I get away with this? And you either lie or you give a (laughs) half-truth. Sebastian says that's a lie. And, uh, oh, it is. Especially when the parent knows. (laughs) And they're like, your punishment is worse, okay? I know that you're avoiding this. (laughs) Be truthful. Even when it's hard. Because your relationship will be stronger for it. And there will be more trust when you're truthful you will find you start to trust God more because you experience his trust and his grace with that truth. Lastly, and again, these aren't exhaustive, but listen. Listen. How many times do we go to someone and it's like, all right, I have this list of things. I'm going to be truthful with them. I'm gonna, we're going to spend time together and I have all these things that I want them to change, right? Like, We've got these many issues, and it's you, 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 here, 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 all these things. And I have all these things to say, right? Or even, hey, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And I have these things I need to say. If the other person or you don't listen, don't take time to understand where that person's coming from, don't take time to truly value what's going on, it's going to be missed. And the vulnerability is going to feel stepped on. God never does that to us when we're truthful with him. Sure, we may need to face some consequences sometimes, but he's there with us in the facing. Take time to listen to what he has to say. Take time to listen to other people. Allow other people to listen to you. Listening is hard, so I'm going to subpoint this one. We can listen to God by praying and then waiting. Pray and then wait. It's all through Scripture. This is a coherent thing too, okay? Because it says, uh, it says, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. It says, be still and know that I am God. And on and on and on. Listening requires waiting. <laughs> it requires not just planning that next thing to say. It, it requires patiently waiting to hear what someone has to say because you truly want to know the answer. Allow God to be truthful with us. And that's scary. It's scary. Another way to listen is to read his word. Because sometimes we can get distracted or we can say, Lord, I'm praying and now I'm waiting. And I remember this exercise in, in class one time. <clears throat> we, were, we were told, try to think of nothing. So try to think of nothing, nothing at all. Especially don't think of a pink polar bear. Now, the only thing you can think of is about a pink polar bear. Our thoughts have a way of (laughs) giving us confirmation bias. And sometimes that's not what God's trying to tell us. And we know what God is trying to tell us by reading his word. (laughs) That's how we listen. That's how we face hard things. And a third way to listen is Watch. It's okay to pray and say, Lord, help me understand this better or what this or something that's going on or, or give me direction. 
And then to, to wait, to read, to be truthful, and to have that silence and solitude. And if he doesn't answer, to go forth and watch for him to answer. Sometimes he answers in ways that we don't expect. I could argue he often answers in ways we don't expect. So draw near to God through silence and solitude, through being truthful, and through listening. In a world where it's difficult to grasp onto things that matter, these three matter. Because draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. And it's a promise when we understand that the presence of God both kills and blesses. That's a promise that saves. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's how it corresponds and coheres. That's how it works. That's true. I got chills. It's so beautiful to face this and to learn from it and allow that to bless. And I know that there's something that each of you is going through. And I don't necessarily know how to speak to every point of what you're going through, but I can promise you that it's worth coming before the King of Kings and being real with him and allowing him to teach you how to be real, how to trust again, and trusting him enough to, in baby steps even, start seeing what trust looks like in the world again. And in so doing, you'll be in the presence of God, which is a blessing that all these words that I've said barely do justice to. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross-culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.